0: So, have you ever failed at something? Show of hands, if you've ever failed at something, just uh, show of hands. Oh good, I'm not alone. I have a long list, I could give lots of examples over the years. Uh, I'll just give you one um, we had uh, just moved to the area, and um, the church that I was serving in had they have they have an Iwana program, and uh, towards the end of the year, one of the things that they do is they have a um, a box car. I forget what exactly what they call the kind of a box car tournament, and and so they give you a kit, and it has like a wood little car, and then you're supposed to paint it and make it all nice, and and so my two little boys were excited I was kind of excited and so uh, we went you know and we got pain and we you know painted it up and and uh, we were pretty proud of our car and then we got you know to the big Iwana oh Grand Prix that's what it's called the Iwana Grand Prix and I realized there are dads that take it a lot more serious than I do. I mean, there were some, ca- I could I mean, our car, I thought we had done a pretty good job until I got there and saw all of these cars and all of these creative ways they, they did these cars. So I said, that's all right, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how, what, how the car looks. Matters what it does on the track. That's what I told my boys, all right? And was, uh, we were excited, and so uh, both guys, both boys, they raced, and um, in every single race, not only did we not win, our car never got to the finish line. <laughs> I think that we were the only... I mean, there are hundreds of kids. This is a big deal. I never knew that. Nobody told me All right, when I came to the church how big of a deal the uh, Juana Grand Prix was. And we my. My boys just held their head in shame. They wouldn't even acknowledge me as their dad. You know, like I'm, That's not an exaggeration. <laughs> not a single car ever made it to the finish line. And so only later did I find out there's metal things you put on it and all kinds of things to weight it down. And, uh, and uh, so we did it again, and we made it to the finish line the following year, so that's exciting. We lost every race, but we did make it to the finish line. Every one of us, right? All of us are gonna fail at things from time to time that we do. Um, But I'm here to give you some very, very exciting news tonight. Uh, It's actually a guarantee. I want to give you tonight, and it's really not me, it's the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3. I wanna give to you tonight a guarantee. It is a gospel guarantee, It is a guarantee that because of the gospel, you will never ultimately fail. You're on a victorious team. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, I don't have the words up here. Uh, my apologies, I don't have notes for you tonight as well. I don't have growth guides. I have failed once again uh, at that. Uh, but uh, anyways, we do have some notes up here. If you've got something you want to take some notes on. Um, but um, we're finishing up chapter 3. And if you're new, if this is your first week here, um, we don't mess around. We, we, it's not milk, it's meat. We, we dive in. We go verse verse by verse through the book. And this is our eighth week. We're only on chapter three. So uh, we go verse by verse through this book. And um, just to kind of catch you up, because I did uh, see some new faces here. This is a book written by Peter. And he wrote it to uh, Christians in an area, a region known as Asia Minor, which would be modern day Turkey. And he was writing to uh, a particular Group of people followers of Christ, both Jew and Gentile, who were experiencing persecution because uh, Emperor Nero was on the throne and uh, he was persecuting Christians now at the time when Peter wrote this it wasn't the height of the persecution yet, but there still was persecution that was happening because of their commitments to Jesus Christ as I mentioned a number of times within three letters of Peter writing this he would be martyred he would be killed for his faith, and so this is a letter written to discouraged and defeated Christians who are trying to be holy people in an unholy place, and I think it's such a fitting book for us to do in the world that we live in today because our world is becoming more and more unholy. And the temptation may be to try to fit in, to just conform, because when you're holy in an unholy place, that can lead to persecution. That can lead to not being accepted. That can uh, lead to some tensions. And so he was writing this letter to to, uh, these believers in Asia Minor, really to say, keep going, keep fighting the good fight of faith, and reminding them that they're not home yet. Jesus will settle the score ultimately when he returns and establishes his kingdom. Until then, stay the course. And that's really our challenge is is pursue holiness in unholy times no matter the cost. Because at the end of the, the day, if you've read through the book, you know how it ends. The good guys win. And so what's interesting about this book, and one of the reasons I really enjoy this book, is because it's really a combination of encouragement and exhortation. And those are very similar, but there's, I, I see a little bit of a difference between encouragement and exhortation. I think I talked about this one week, so I won't uh, talk too long on this, but encouragement is essentially a pat on the back, right? It's comfort, it's trying to give, in, you know, encourage to try to breathe into someone some courage to comfort them, All right, It's a pat on the back. Exhortation is a kick in the pants, <laughs> Right, It's a challenge, it's, it's pushing. And, and what I love about this book is it's really a combination of both. When he writes this, he's wanting to encourage them because they're going through very difficult times, they're facing suffering. In fact, the, the, the section we're in is on suffering, all right. This is really, the end of chapter three, is a, it's kind of a, a part of a section he's writing in about suffering. They're, they're suffering and, and, and some of it is because of their faith and so he's encouraging them. He says encouraging words in here but then he'll turn around and exhort and push and challenge. And that's what we have tonight. We have some words of encouragement and then I wanna end with an exhortation. For us, And so tonight, I want to give to you a gospel guarantee. Actually, I want to give you three gospel guarantees um, that we find in this passage. So let's just start. Uh, let's do this. Let's stand and let's read all of the verses and then we'll come back and hit it a verse at a time. So let's stand. Let's give honor to God's word and stand in honor of his word. And let's, let's read. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Thank you. Go ahead and have a seat, if you would, please. Now, you may have noticed in there that there are a couple challenging verses. That uh, we'll have to wrestle through a little bit tonight. In the midst of giving you encouragement, uh, there are a few challenging things that we came across, and we'll get to that in a bit. But let me start by giving you the first gospel guarantee. Go back and look at verse 18. It says, "For Christ." Also suffered. Also, he's linking what was talked about previously, what we looked at last week, how they were uh, they were suffering for righteousness' sake, and he's saying, "Listen, so did Christ. For Christ also suffered. Now, this is important. Once for sins." The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. I want you to know right there in one verse, you have a very concise and clear presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In that one verse... And what this guarantees to us, if we respond to the gospel, here's the first gospel guarantee, that we can have life with God despite our sin. We can have life with God despite our sin. The reality is there's not a person in this room, if God gives us another week of life, there's not a person that's gonna go until we meet again next week and not struggle with sin. That is a reality of life, whether you know Christ or don't know Christ. We were born that way. We were born in sin. If you are a parent, it does not take long for you to start seeing the sin nature at work in that precious little child that you brought home from the hospital. (laughs) I want to tell you, one of our daughters who will remain nameless, this little thing when she was two and three years old, she had a will. One time my wife told her to do something and my three-year-old daughter said to my wife, I won't and you better watch your attitude. (laughs) We thought, you know, you've heard about pastors, kids. We thought, this is the one. This is the one they're talking about that turns out like this, you know, this terrible person. And by God's grace, she, uh, you know, she got out of that and she's a, pr- a wonderful young lady, loves Jesus and all of those things. But trust me, if you're a parent, you don't have to be convinced that we have a sin nature. All right? Um, and we don't just see it in our kids. Our kids have seen it in us. Amen, parents? Boy, you weren't excited about that part of it, parents. <laughs> I mean, what a concise demonstration, or, uh, description of the gospel. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. I mean, right there is the gospel that Jesus died once and for all. In the Old Testament, they had to come week after week, and then once a year, the day of atonement, year after year after year, always with blood, and it never solved the sin problem. And so I want to tell you if I was you, I'd underline that word once. What a glorious, what a glorious reminder that he died for sins once. That one act 2000 years ago when he shed his blood on the cross once. That's all it took to pay the punishment for our sin. The righteous for the unrighteous. There's a single one of us that couldn't take an inch toward having a relationship with God, but because the righteous died for the unrighteous, it says that he could bring us to God. His death and his resurrection. I heard of a pastor who received a very generous offer from a family in their church. This family was going to Disney World and they wanted to take the pastor and his family with them. I'm not sharing this for, you know, if any of you are going to Disneyland, but if you want to pray about it, um, maybe maybe there is application here. Uh, I'm kidding. I don't even like Disney World. My wife does. I don't. Who cares? Okay. (laughs) So they wanted to take him, not only take him, they wanted to treat him to everything, hotel rooms, meals, tickets to the park, everything on that trip, every single thing. And this pastor was a humble guy, and they, so the guy knew how he was gonna respond. So the guy offering this trip told the pastor that he had one condition and one condition only. If you pay for anything, you pay for everything. If you offer to pay for anything, you have to pay for everything. In other words, try to pull out your wallet to pay for anything and you're gonna owe for everything. He insisted that every last thing was his treat, was covered by him. You know that every last sin was covered on the cross? Every last sin. There's not a sin that wasn't covered, past, present, and future, that his shed blood didn't do what was necessary to cover the price for that sin. And yet, so often in the, our human condition, right, we try to earn. What could never be earned? C.S. Uh, C.H. Uh, Spurgeon, many of you know, he's kind of one of my heroes, the British preacher from the 1800s. Uh, I actually have a, a, uh, a picture of him in my office. He's smoking a pipe, so I got in trouble with my wife, but that was the only picture I could find that I liked was him smoking a pipe. And... Um, I also have C.S. Lewis and he's smoking a pipe too, so I don't know, I don't know, that just happened. Uh, anyway, not anything to do with the quote, but he said the following, human nature's way of salvation is do, 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 but God's way of salvation is done, done, it is all done. You know, really, I mean, you could, You could do a comparative study on religions. I think that's a healthy thing. Maybe we'll do it sometime with um, Uncaged. Um, but, But you know, with all of the different similarities and you could chart everything, you know what separates Christianity from all the religions in the world? Every religion says this is what you must do. Only Christianity says it is what Jesus has done. Christianity is the only religion but there's nothing we could do to enter into a relationship with God. It is only what Christ has done on our behalf. I want you to remember this about the gospel. It's simple, but it's deep. The gospel is simple. So simple a child could understand it. Jesus said, faith like a child. The gospel. It is so simple, a child could understand, but it's deep. The more you dive in and lean into the gospel, the more the more it impacts you when you get it. Not only that, not only is the gospel simple, but deep, it's also free, but it isn't cheap. It is simple and it is free. Christ did everything. The only part we play is to accept it. <laughs> And I know that probably most of you, maybe every person in this room, maybe everyone that's watching this online, like, yeah, yeah, I get that. I I was this age and I gave my life to Christ. Move on, move on, move on. I always love the words of the author. I think it was J.D. Grew who said, we never move beyond the gospel. We only move deeper into the gospel. Man, we should always preach the gospel. We should always pray the gospel. We should always preach the gospel to those around us. We should always preach the gospel to ourselves. It keeps us humble. It keeps us in our proper place. It keeps us gracious towards others. And it's a reminder that I have a standing with God, not because of how great and wonderful I am. I have a standing before God because of how merciful and gracious our Father is, that his Son would shed his blood to give us life. Let's keep reading. That's our first guarantee. Life with God, despite the fact that we sin. Second one, look at verse 19 through 21, and this is where it gets a little bit confusing. In which talks about him dying and then being al- uh, made alive in the spirit. Uh, this is kind of interesting, by the way. At the end of verse 18, it's not a capital S. Uh, so it's, it, it's spirit, small s. So when, when Jesus came in the form of a man, uh, he came with a, a body, soul, and a spirit. And so he physically died. But his spirit came alive. And so at, at the moment... After his death, he became alive. His spirit was alive without a body. Verse 19. Now th- this is fascinating to me, okay? Because we talk about Friday and we talk about Sunday, but what happened Saturday? Or you should say, what, or even what happened Friday night until Sunday? What happened to Jesus? Now we know on the cross, he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. So we know that ultimately he went to the father and then he appeared and rose in physical form. But, but this is kind of interesting to think about and there's a lot of different um, uh, interpretations of this. So I wanna just kind of dive into it a little bit. Verse 19, in which he went and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison, Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And then he says baptism, which corresponds to this, so in other words, he's linking it to the story of Noah, now saves you. Do you hear me? Now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here are three questions I want us to, to kind of wrestle through a little bit here uh, tonight. Because you, like you like the meat, not just the milk, amen? Okay, here are the three questions. Did Jesus descend into hell? Secondly, who are the spirits that Jesus preached to in what is described here as prison? And then number three, does baptism save us? Okay, those, at least for me, when I read that, those are the three tensions I feel. They're like, oh, okay, wait wait, wait a second. I, I will just say, I, I grew up in a church. Um, I, you know, I was kind of very nominal growing up, but uh, I went to church here and there, and then, of course, I got saved, and, and I've never been in a church that taught that Jesus actually went into hell after his death, and maybe some of you have. And just so you know, let me just make this clear—that it's not a deal breaker. All right, for salvation, by the way, what, what you think happened in those moments after his death on the cross? So let me just make that clear. Okay, I personally would consider this a secondary issue, if you will. Okay. But uh, what's going on there? Because uh, if you know the Apostles' Creed, I'm sure you've heard of the Apostles' Creed. We won't take the time uh, to read it. But, but one of the things, one of the lines in the Apostles' Creed is that he descended into hell. So did he descend into hell? Well, I'm not gonna give you a definitive answer on that, but I do want to just kind of pause for a second and then think about this, Well, this idea that after he died and he came back to life not yet having his body which he would receive on Sunday. What does this mean that he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison? Well, because there's a number of questions there. Um, first of all, where, where, where is prison? Is this hell? And then if it is hell, is this hell hell? Like is heaven and hell like what heaven and hell is? Because, and I'm gonna answer that one for you, No. The end of Revelation, it talks about a new heavens and a new earth. That'll be the ultimate heaven. And heaven comes down, by the way. We don't go up to heaven. Heaven comes down ultimately in the new heavens the new earth. Right? Go back, read the end of Revelation. And I would suggest that the hell now is not the hell, hell of all of eternity, that that will come one day at the end of Revelation. It also talks about that, the lake of fire. So there seems to be a temporary dwelling place that people go. Those that know Christ and those that don't know Christ. Let me just complicate a little bit more, because that will be fun. Turn to Luke chapter 16, if you would, please. And, and I'm gonna, and I'll just be honest with you, not every pastor will, but I'll be honest with you. I don't know if my interpretation is correct. Because I think there's multiple interpretations that, that you, know, you could take on, on some of these things. Okay, this is a deal breaker, right? This isn't heaven or hell, okay? There's, there's many things in scripture um, that are up for interpretation that, that, that are hard to know. But look at Luke 16 for a second. What, what does this temporary dwelling place look like in the afterlife before the new heavens and the new earth and the lake of fire someday? Well, Jesus tells this story, but some see this as a parable, but the thing is he he's never once used real names in a parable. And so in this story that he tells, he uses real specific names. And so that to me means that most likely this isn't just a made-up story, this is, this is based on reality. Okay, so... It goes like this. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously substu- every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. Different Lazarus, not the Lazarus that rose from the dead, okay? Uh, Jesus rose from the dead. Different Lazarus. Who's covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. That's gross. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. I, I don't know like if, if this is normative stuff here or if this is kind of what it was before Jesus died and rose from the dead. And, and so there's a, there's a lot of question here, but um, <clears throat> it's kind of interesting. The angels uh, brought him to Abraham's side. So there's two sides the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm an- in anguish in this flame. And so whatever this temporary dwelling place is, it's really hot. And he recognizes Abraham Maybe he's thinking, "Well, Lazarus knew me, May, you know. Maybe he'll help me out here." Now, here's the other challenging thing: is you have someone who's in temporary hell, someone who's in temporary heaven, and they're near each other. That's confusing too. But Abraham said, "Child, remember that you, in your lifetime, receive your good things, Lazarus and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is." comforted here and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us, right? It is, uh, destined, it is uh, uh, what is destined for man to die once and after that to face judgment. And there's no crossing over from one side to the other. I think those that believe in purgatory have some challenges how they would interpret and understand (laughs) this. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and prophets, neither will he be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. By the way, I think that's, 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 that's powerful there. That, that's, that's the depth of the depravity of the human heart. Don't underestimate the depravity of the human heart, that, that even if someone came back from the dead to present the gospel, <laughs> in their stubbornness of their heart, they still wouldn't receive it. Now, there's all kinds of interpretations here. Some believe that when Jesus rose from the dead, he then took, he took uh, the Old Testament saints, saints there, pre you know, the Old Covenant, they, they took them up into heaven. I mean, there's a lot of views here, and, and I guess I'm not trying to answer those questions necessarily, only to say this. I'm not trying to confuse us more, okay? Because I'm not even sure what to do with this passage, but I say it to say this. There's a lot going on that we don't know about in the afterlife, Like, we have a description of the lake of fire, eternal hell, and, and the new heavens, new earth, heaven, someday, like, we, we have a little bit of a picture of that, but, but, but what it all looks like, now, I, I don't know, but, so, I don't know if any of us can claim to have a market on what that looks like. We, we, we know this, we, we know that you die, and if you know Christ, you go to paradise with God, and if you don't, you go to a place called Hades, and it's wonderful, or it's miserable, and then one day at the new heavens, new earth, and the lake of fire, it's even more wonderful and even more miserable, okay? That's about what I know. (laughs) But there's something going on in the afterlife when people die and pass. And so the question is, did he descend into hell? Well, I don't think so, but 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 could it be that if this was the scenario, what if he came and he did proclaim it? By the way, Hades, and this word gets a little confusing too, Hades technically means like this temporary dwelling place. It doesn't necessarily mean hell, but it's sometimes used for hell. So, so Hades is this, seems to be at least at this time when Jesus was teaching on it that, that it wasn't way up there, you know, are the Christians and way down there, are those that aren't. It, it seemed like that they were like somehow within distance of each other and so, you, you know, it could be a number of things that he came and he preached to those, uh, the spirits in prison, and we'll get to that in a second. Okay, are you with me? Are we, are we, are we good? good? All right, just stay with me because I think this is stuff like, like this stuff we need to know. Right, we need to dig in when we don't understand something in scripture, okay? Um, he could have been on the, on the heaven side proclaiming it. He, I, mean, it could, I mean, there are a number of, of, of interpretations there, I suppose. Um, but who are these spirits in prison? Well, that's confusing too. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 6. Let me confuse you some more. Yay, all right, let's go to Genesis 6, all right? Spirits in prison, who are the spirits in prison? Well, it could be a number of things here, all right? Um, spirits in prison could be the spirits, right? Um, the spirit, soul, so to speak, um, of people, right? When, when we die, we, we don't have a new transformed body. That doesn't come until the return of Christ, all right? So it could be the spirit, when it says he used the, used the word spirit, spirits in prison, it, it, it could be the, the spirit of people. It could be, and another option is that it could be um, angels, fallen angels. Uh, we know that a, f- a third of the angels fell in Satan's rebellion. We know in 2 Peter 2 4. We know in Jude 6. It talks about um, uh, uh, angels that have been put, fallen angels, demons who have been put into prison and have been locked away. Not all of them, obviously there's a lot still roaming, but some that have been locked away, put away. This is interesting because he links, and this is important, This is why you never, like, dive, you know, skydive, and then you parachute, like, into one verse, and then yank it out, and then, you know, because there's a lot of bad theology that can develop. Always read in context. When he talks about the spirits in prison, it's in the context of Noah. He connects that. That's the connecting piece in this section of Scripture. So who are these spirits? Well, let me just throw out one other possible option. Now listen, I don't know if you're digging this. I, I have a Bible teacher here, and I know he's digging it, right? Amen? Oh, okay. <laughs> Thought I'd get an amen, Chad. Amen. There we go, okay. Um, I should put you on the spot, make you interpret this. Oh. No, I'm All right, so... Read this, verse one through eight. I'm going somewhere with this. I really think I am, okay? Here we go. (laughs) No promises, because I do have ADD, but I think I am going somewhere. Okay, here we go. Chapter six, verse one. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. This, of course, doesn't mean literally 120 years, but he's shortening their lifespan. He, because the sinfulness is part of punishment. All right? This is about the length of time. you are not gonna live a bunch of you know, tons of years. He's gonna limit it. Right? No one here is gonna live to be 600. The Nephilim, the Nephilim, were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of god came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them these were the mighty men who were of old the men of renown these were giants by the way you read later about these these were giants to our passage in 1 Peter, and he's linking this idea, so back to 1 Peter now. Okay, I won't have you turn anywhere else. All right, we're good. All right. And he's talking about Jesus going and proclaiming to the spirits in prison and linking it to the days of Noah. So here's another interpretation. Notice he called him the sons, uh, the sons, what is it now? The sons of God, right, and the what? Are, the women of man, right? Women of what is it? Daughters of, man. Daughters of man. Thank you. Daughters of man, sons of God. An interpretation of sons of God are angelic beings. What very well may have happened was, because here's the thing with angels. Angels are spirit beings, right? We understand they're spirit beings. But they can take on a physical form in in like some temporary way. They can take on some type of, manifest themselves physically. Uh, The verse, uh, maybe from Hebrews, you've heard of that. You may be entertaining an angel unaware, if you interpret that Greek word as a angel, as we understand angels, which I do, all right, that that can happen. I, I uh, Even my fa- my father-in-law, listen, my father-in-law, he's he's as straight as they get theologically, okay? He is, uh, uh, that's a compliment, sort of, if he's watching this um, later. Um, I mean, you know, he... But uh, he is convinced when he was pastoring, I think it was in Wisconsin, um, that he was uh, in between, uh, right before the service was ready to start, someone came up, uh, uh, they were very thirsty and they kind of looked pretty raggedy. And, and he said, uh, where's the drinking fountain? And uh, told him, and he said, listen, are you faithfully preaching the word of God here? And father-in-law said, yes, we are. Said, he, said, he said, keep, keep, keep preaching the word. Don't ever stop preaching the word. And he said, okay, and he turned around. He said, okay, turned around, I turned back. The man who was going down the hallway to the, the, the drinking fountain was just gone. And he thinks very well could have been an angel. I've got a, a, a friend in ninth grade, he smoked a lot of marijuana, so I'll take that with a grain of salt, uh, but uh, he was a stoner, but <clears throat> I didn't know Jesus, I didn't get stoned either, but he, he did, I hung out with those who did, and uh, uh, they were in California, and his brother was having a really bad asthma attack, and they were visiting, and they didn't know where a hospital was, and he was actually down on the seat where you couldn't see him, he was having an attack, someone drove by, said roll down the window, they rolled down the window and they said the hospital is and they gave directions to the hospital they wrote it down they turned to thank them the car was gone they're on a major highway the car is just gone alright now you think I'm crazy you think I'm wacky whatever um, do I know definitively that story is true do I think that angels could do things like that yes I do listen if God can part the Red Sea and create the world by just his words he could do about anything he wants right He can do anything. I don't know if this is the case, but you wanna know where I lean? I lean towards this either being, angelic beings who took on some physical form to have sex with women to create a population of evil people to try to take over the world for Satan. Or it could be... uh, men that, were, that they came into them and demon-possessed them or uh, you know, however you wanna say that. So what I think in this passage is I think that Peter is alluding to, even if you try to create a super race, the evil side, even tries to create a super race by impregnating women and having this half-angelic, half-human species, it ain't gonna work against God. That's my point in all of this. (laughs) And he reminds them of that, that after he left, he went. And I think he didn't preach the gospel because um, he doesn't die once and after that face judgment. He's not given, some believe he was giving them another chance to respond to the gospel, which would be contrary to scripture. I think wherever he went, wherever Jesus was going, and I don't know 100%, it was specifically those spirits who had impregnated these women. I don't know, it could just be simply unbelievers. I tend to think it, it was a very specific because he's bringing Noah here into this and that's very specific on how the chapter starts before he brings the flood. I believe he's saying every attempt even to create this super race that def, tries to defeat my plan, plan will fail and Satan who tried to defeat me at the cross. I mean, we know all the way back in Genesis 3 that he will, he, he will, he will, he will nip his heel but Jesus will crush his head. And you go, every, you go from Genesis all the way through Scripture. Every attempt by Satan And his evil demons have been ultimately thwarted by Jesus. And when Jesus rose from the dead, I believe now, by the way, some even interpret this was not necessarily chronological that it was talking about him preaching to them in Noah's day, but I I believe that after he died on a cross. He went to the spirits in prison and reminded him he is the king of kings and he will not be defeated. The baptism part is also connecting uh, the flood Of course, it doesn't mean that baptism saves us. Compare scripture with scripture. It's a Bible study principle. If something seems out of place, compare it with scripture. It's clear in other places that that baptism is an outward sign of an inward commitment a person has already made. But it is linking that, that water brought judgment. Now, catch this. He's linking it to Noah. Water brought judgment to the ungodly but it brought salvation to the eight. So baptism, and by the way, and, and some of you know we're launching a new church here soon, and uh, I'm so excited, we already have someone to baptize when we start this new church. How cool is that? We haven't even started yet. You know baptism is? It, it, it is a reminder of the death of Christ. There was a price to pay for our sin. There was a judgment that had to be met because God isn't just gracious and merciful and forgiving, he is also a holy, just God. And he said all the way in the garden that if you choose sin, you die. So Christ became our death. (laughs) But he rose from the dead and became our salvation, amen. And baptism is a reminder, I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And therefore, I want to be dead to sin and alive to Christ. That is the glorious gospel. Can I get an amen, please? All right, let's let's keep moving. Oh, let me give you the second point, though. The gospel guarantees that God will right all wrongs. I want you to stop and think about Noah for a second. All of that time, I forget how many, day, how many days it was now, but all of that time building an ark. Do you know it's possible there wasn't even rain yet? Did you know that? Noah, what are you doing? I'm building an ark. That's a big ark. What are you building an ark for? The rain? Let's rain. Can you imagine the unrighteous people, the ridicule? Day after day after day after day after day after day. day. Him down to like, you know, very specifics on how to uh, be obedient to God and what he commanded of him. Every day taking the ridicule. I think that's a lot of why Peter is linking Noah and why he's using Noah as an example for these people. He said, it doesn't matter. Every day you be obedient. I don't care if it's not popular in the culture. I don't care if it means suffering. You are to be obedient to Christ because you will be saved. The ones laughing won't be saved. They won't be on the boat unless they come to know Christ. The day's coming where he'll right the wrongs, just like he did with Noah. They ridiculed, they mocked, and God righted the wrongs. He killed the wicked, and he preserved the obedient. God will right all wrongs. And I'm gonna tell you, it's true for us today as well. It's so liberating. It's so liberating when we let go of needing to right the ways that we've been wronged. This is personal to me, because I've been struggling, to be honest with you, if if I might confess. I've struggled to let go of some anger. I've struggled to apply this gospel truth to my own life. Not in action, but in my heart. And the truth be, it's because of my own pride and wounded ego. When we feel we have to right when we've been wrong, oftentimes it's pride and a wounded ego. And so the truth is I'm preaching this to myself. If you get something out of it, good, but God um, took me to the woodshed today on this one. I wrote this down in the middle of wrestling with God about it. And I wrote this down and I think it was from him. Maybe some of you are in the same boat with me. It's hard to let go of some hurts when you've been wronged in some ways. Here it is. Letting God settle the score is the only way to set your soul free from anger and bitterness. Letting God settle the score is the only way to set your soul free from anger and bitterness. Let's uh, look at the last verse. You one more gospel guarantee. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. I want you to stop for a moment. Let's, let's, go, let's go back. Let's go back to right before Jesus' crucifixion when the soldiers mocked him, joking about him being the king, even making a crown of thorns, mocking him and just slamming it into a skull. As they whipped him, ridiculing him, each whip taking out chunks of flesh, Scripture says he could have called down a legion of angels at any moment if he wanted to. Even in his weakened state, he could have called him down and stopped it all. But he was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was spit on. And in return, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I don't know what all Jesus was thinking as he took the beatings and endured the mocking. Maybe he, in the garden, in a sorrow sweating blood i wonder if he stopped to think about how he knew this would all turn out As philippians 2 tells us knowing that one day every knee on heaven and earth will bow Do you know what it means to be at the right hand of God? In ancient times, it meant that you had the king's power and authority. So to be at the right hand of God means that Jesus, enduring the shame, enduring the cross, proclaiming the victory, he went, he went and now he waits at the right hand of God, all the authority, all of the power of the king. And one day, Revelation 19 says that he will come and he will come on a white horse and he will judge the nations for their sins. And across his chest, a sash will be a, a name that says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And oh, by the way, it says that an army will be joining him. You know who that army is? It's the angels that didn't fall that aren't in prison. And it's you and it's me that are in Christ. We can't lose. Can't fail. It's a done deal if you're in Christ. We win. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? So, I believe with all of my heart, I'm gonna skip personal here, In closing, I believe with all of my heart the things that have happened in our lives, most of you know, not everyone knows, doesn't matter the details, but I believe how things happen really stunk. (laughs) I believe ultimately what happened is part of the plan of God. I believe how some things happen wasn't the will of God. I believe what ultimately happened is the will of God. And that's, I'm not, I mean, point my finger at myself in some ways too. I have had, whatever you feel about this, I have had multiple people speak very specific words over me that they believe were given to them by God. In two particular cases, they shared things about the new church very specific things that were gonna be part of this new church that we would be launching, very specific things that only I and my wife knew about as I had written them in a journal. So I believe with all of my heart that God is calling us to do what we're already doing here and ultimately to launch a church. But I also wanna tell you this, I have experienced since officially announcing it and really moving in very specific ways in that direction. I have experienced a very high level of spiritual warfare. And I feel great tonight. I Was praying in the spirit on the way here, and God lifted me out of a funk that I've been in this past week. And before that, up and down. I I have felt anger at times, I have felt sadness at times, and I have felt fear at times. Those are normal feelings that we all have, but, but there's something different over the last month where there's an intensity to it. And to be quite honest, I haven't always put on the armor of God and proclaimed my victory. I guess what I'm saying is is, is what God has done today, sitting down and diving into this and being reminded of who Christ is, what Christ has done, what Christ is going to do, has reminded me that I have nothing to be afraid of, I do not have to fear failure. I do not have to hold on to anger. And I can release, and it's not just me. We we journey this together as a family. I'm just saying me specifically have felt a very powerful level of spiritual warfare recently, and I have felt at times defeated. So, hey, who wants to join my church? (laughs) Woo, yeah. It hasn't been all the time, and I feel equipped that God is calling me, that he's going to equip to do this. So it's, I guess what I'm saying is, I want to admit to you that it's easy for any of us to forget our identity. (laughs) To forget that each one of us are precious enough in God's eyes to die for. And that God loves each and every one of us as much as he loved Noah, as much as he loved Peter. And we have the spirit of the living God dwelling in us just like those men and women of the book of Acts who did great things for the glory of God. So that's our gospel guarantee when you feel sad, when you feel angry, when you're afraid. Preach the gospel to your own soul and remember, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Father God, Thank you for your word. Thank you for the spirit of God. Thank you that we have a guarantee because of the gospel. And so, Father, may we grab hold of that gospel guarantee. You have defeated Satan time and time again in the garden, in the wilderness, in Golgotha, He proclaimed your victory. Your son proclaimed his victory over death. And he will reign for all eternity. So may we live in that victory. That is our gospel guarantee. And all God's people said, amen. We hope you were encouraged by God's word today. You can join us each weekday morning for a five minute fill up. And for other teaching, writing and training resources, don't forget to check out our website at uncagedbibleministry.com. The mission of Uncaged is to help people fall in love with the word of God, so they fall more in love with the God of the word.